I uh, will take a couple of comments or questions if anybody wants to uh, make them. Okay, you've had it again. Uh, page 38, where, the next page on where it says Genesis 1 to 11 and history. Where's the roster? Is that it there? Okay. Uh, which is another kind of another run out the same questions, but as the top of the page implies, um, broadening it out a bit to the whole of these 11 chapters, Genesis 1 to 11 and history. And then uh, you probably need the, um, if you're looking at the computer, you probably need the, what do you call it, the print. Um, there's some funny lines and whatnot, diagram things, that you probably need the print, um, what is it called, view, uh, in order to be able to see. Uh, what I've put on in the diagram near the top is um, the names of a range of people who've got different sorts of views uh, on, on the nature of Genesis 1 to 11. Um, so at the top, there are people who, who say Genesis 1 to 11 happened exactly as it says. And at the bottom, there are people who say it's pure fiction. When they say it's pure fiction, they're not being rude. They, yeah. um, so if you want to read somebody who, say, who reckons it's very important that it's all exactly what happened, then Francis Schaeffer uh, is the person who is the most um, uh, intelligent, I'd say, person who's maintained that in that book of his Genesis in Space and Time. Uh, Gerhard von Rath, who wrote a commentary on Genesis, and Karl Barth, who you might have heard of, uh, and Derek Kidner, who wrote a commentary on Genesis, all have similar sorts of views, um, really, to, to the kind of way I've been talking about it. Um, von Rad talks about Genesis in the German original. Well, both von Rad and, Gen and, and Barth both talk about the Genesis story as saga, S-A-G-E, uh, uh, the German word saga, which then gets translated into English as saga, which is rather misleading because Saga in English means something rather narrower and more, more precise than Saga in German, which is close to simply being a word that means story. Uh, and Barth has got some great remarks about how, for instance, with regard to a question that several people raised, why, why all this about the rivers in Genesis 2? I've never noticed that before. <laughs> a couple of people, actually. Uh, what's this about the rivers? And Barth has a great comment. No, Von Rad has got a great comment. Well, one of them has got a great comment about that. <laughs> um, in which he says, uh, we, we can't, in effect, we can't locate those rivers on the map. When you try to fix those rivers, it doesn't work. Um, no sensible map, as it were, can, can put the rivers in those places, those rivers in those places. Um, uh, but, but, but what the detail, what it's, it's doing is, is saying, this is talking about the real world. It's a, it's a place that's got names we're talking about. We can't locate Eden. But, but Eden was a, was, a, was a real place. This is a real thing that happened. Uh, so that's another way of, put, of, of putting it as Derek Kinder does, in terms of a parabolic presentation of, real, of actual events. On the other hand, the guys at the bottom are all guys who uh, say, in effect, the Genesis stories are fictional. Alan Richardson, in his commentary on Genesis, calls them parables. Uh, Bill Deaver, in this book, What Did the Biblical Writers Know?, which I always um, like telling people is dedicated to his wives. <laughs> um, I only have one at a time, I think. Um, he describes it as a myth uh, in, in, in the sense that it's a true story about the fact that when a man and a woman find each other, there is paradise. Ah. <laughs> if paradise is half as nice as the heaven that you take me to. But that's an old 1960s song that you don't know. 
Uh, Robert Davidson calls it myth. Rudolf Bultmann calls it myth in the sense that it is a, a timeless, uh, a, 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 an apparently historical, a narrative portrayal of a timeless truth. Those are the different sorts of views that there are around in the scholarly world. Uh, here's my, me summarising the, um, uh, the point I was making just now about the nature of Genesis 1-3. to When God inspired the account of the end in Revelation, this did not involve giving the author extra hard facts that the author could not have access to. Inspiring Revelation involved inspiring a narrative about real future historical events that is expressed in theological symbols and has virtually no hard facts. I presume the same is true about God's inspiring the account of the beginning in Genesis, which is stiff with symbolism like Revelation, and yet it's often the same symbolism, trees of life, water, things like that. Remember, of course, that for most of Genesis 1 there were no human eyewitnesses, so okay, even if Adam and Eva told their children what happened, told Seth, and he told it, so on, so on, so on, so on, that would only take you from Friday afternoon. It wouldn't do you, do you any good at all from Sunday morning to Friday dinner time, Friday lunchtime. <laughs> to put it another way, Genesis 1 to 11, as I was saying just now, is parabolic history, a picture account of events. That doesn't mean that we don't take every detail of the story seriously. If anything, it means the opposite, that every detail is there because somebody thought it up, not, it, not merely because it happened. It's all inspired by God, and it's all there for a purpose. It just means that you can't derive history from it. Compare the story to Samuel 12. That story is not saying that there was actually a rich sheep owner, and a poor man, and a visitor, and a meal. Similarly, the creation story is not saying that actually creation took six days, or involved sun and moon not coming into existence until day four. The two Samuel 12, which, which by the way is another example of something that makes sense against the Babylonian background, because the Babylonians, remember, worship the stars and, and the sun and the moon and so on. So Genesis 1 tells the story and says, ah, don't worry about the sun and the moon and the stars. God didn't even bother with them till day four. And notice the nature of that sentence. God created, and don't, doesn't name them, doesn't call them the sun and the moon. Just says, well, God put these two light posts in the sky. And then at the end of the sentence it says, and the stars also. Now think of what we know about the stars, but then that, which and that's an amazing sentence, amazing phrase, and the stars also. But then think of what the stars mean in that Babylonian context. They are the entities through which the world is governed. Um, and and Genesis one is saying, yeah, just something God did, just like that at the end of day four. The two Samuel twelve story is history in the sense that it speaks of real. That is the the I'm uh, sorry the. The parable, the 2 Samuel 12 story, the parable about the sheep, is history in the sense that it speaks of real people and events, David, Uriah, Bathsheba, but it does so in pictures. Genesis 1 to 3 is history in the sense that it speaks of real people and events, God creating orderliness, goodness, expectations not met, God's design failing to be realised, but it does that in pictures. It speaks of God's real historical intention and God's real act of creation, but its story takes parabolic form. We cannot know anything that you would have that you would have read in the newspapers from it. And to answer or to avoid answering the question several of you asked, you cannot ask where Cain got his wife from. That's to treat the parable as an allegory. Um, at, at the bottom, 
then is another diagram that suggests that the whole of scripture, the scriptural story, the scriptural narrative, is handling, on one hand, striped facts, things that literally happened, uh, and on the other hand, symbolic ways of expressing their significance, so that you can communicate to the people that you need to preach the gospel to what they mean, and interpret the significance of the events. All the way through the scriptural narrative, it's, 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 it's handling both of those. But the, the balance or the ratio between them varies a lot. So that my suggestion is that the nearest there is to narrative in scripture that's simply straight facts uh, comes at the end of the books of Kings uh, in the account of the fall of Jerusalem. That's pure fact. And you've never heard a sermon on it. So facts we think are really important, but they don't preach. Um, at the other extreme, the thing that is most full of symbolism, uh, more full than Genesis, I think, is, is Revelation. But then Genesis is inside it. Um, the Gospels, uh, you were pleased to know, are nearer the King's end of things than they are near the Genesis 1 to 11 uh, or Revelation end um, of that spectrum. Uh, all of the scriptural material needs to be, even, even that stuff at the end of Kings has some interpretation in it. All of scripture, and, and even Revelation, needs to be talking about a real return of Jesus. So all the way through, the scriptural story is talking about real events. Um, uh, but all the way through, it's, it's expressing the significance of those real events by means of symbolism, seeking to communicate with people, seeking to interpret the significance of the events. The balance of how it does that varies uh, all the way through. Hello. Uh, yeah, sorry, thank you. Um, in an allegory, in the sense in which I'm using it here, you you look for um, a uh, an explanation of or a significance in every detail of the story. Um, in whereas uh, in in the telling of a story, there are often things that are simply incidental detail. Um, and so the question of who those other people were in Genesis four, and where Cain got his wife from. Is is one of the details of the story that you can't ask about the significance of. Okay, let me know. I'll pick up a few things out of their postings. Uh, I'll start off with the patriarchy ones and come, may, may come back to some more of it. No, I'll do a few of all of them because there are quite a number of under the, the various ones. Um, the first one I read in the patriarchy postings was, okay, what do I think about the entire issue of patriarchy. <laughs> um, uh, and somebody else said, okay, what do I think about Genesis 1 to 3 of patriarchy, which is, um, let me talk about it from that angle, at least. Uh, what my general attitude to, the, to these kind of questions will be something like this. As, a, as I've suggested already, um, it seems to me to be difficult to avoid the impression, I don't wish to avoid it either, that Genesis 1 uh, assumes a, a, an entirely egalitarian um, relationship position, uh, complementarity uh, of man and woman, not the kind of pseudo-complementarity that some actual hierarchical people talk about when they say men and women are complementary, it's that men are designed to rule and women are designed to obey. I don't call that very complementary, personally. Um, 
uh, but uh, that rather that there is uh, a relationship of equal status and equal commitment, uh, equal obligation, equal love between uh, the man, man and woman as created. And there, no differentiation of roles. Together, they are there, uh, not, with it, not with one of them having authority over the other, but with them having authority over the world. So there is authority and subordination in Genesis, but it's of the entirety of humanity over, over the creation on God's behalf. Um, it's really weird that guys who are usually assumed to be priestly kind of guys, for reasons I won't bother to explain now, but we'll come to it later on in the course. These male priests, then, um, wrote this story um, that talks about women being as equal, uh, being equal to men. And some people say, they can't have meant that. Well, if they didn't, they shouldn't have said it then. They, they said what they did. If they didn't mean to say that, well, tough. Sometimes you say things that you didn't mean to say, and they're still true. And the Holy Spirit is grinning again. <laughs> Don't say the Holy Spirit can't overwhelm uh, human um, weakness in inspiring scripture. I think the same is true about Genesis 2, though that's a slightly um, uh, a more a trickier question. Um, the fact that the woman is created second is surely no indication that there's something inferior about her. Um, I mean, who wants the Mark 1 version of a program when the Mark 2 version has come out? Um, and, and who wants external plumbing when internal plumbing has been invented? Uh, you can make as easily, a case, easily make a case for the woman being the climax of this. Yeah, just think about it. Uh, you can easily uh, make, make a case for the woman being superior to the man as inferior to the man. Now, that, that would be silly, but it's, but it's no more silly um, than suggesting that, uh, that the man is superior and the woman is inferior. It's been, um, and the expression, uh, well, the expression in the King James Bible, a helper meet for him, uh, used to get read that way. Uh, it, the expression is something more like uh, a person who corresponds to him. So if anything, it again certainly points towards the same vision as Genesis 1 does. Um, uh, it's, it's, if, if Adam had named Eve, then that could have been a sign of authority in the way that Adam uh, names the animals. Um, but Adam doesn't name Eve. At least he doesn't name Eve till after uh, the, sin, the sin comes in at the end of Genesis 3. And that's, I think, significant in itself. Where, where the authority of men over women, or at least uh, husbands over wives, um, comes in, where patriarchy comes in, in, in Genesis 1 to 3, as it does, is as a result of, the, of there being sin in the world. Uh, patriarchy comes in <coughs> when God says... Um, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. It's a consequence of being sin in the world. It's, it's, it's one of the con several consequences here. Um, the, the pain of motherhood, I think, is not here actually the pain of bearing children. Uh, it's difficult to see the kind of physiological process of giving birth, it's difficult to see how that ever could have been without some pain. Um, but the, the word that's used to describe the, the pain, the, the two words that are used to describe Eve's pain with regard to her motherhood, are not the words that the Old Testament uses, usually uses about the pain of giving birth. Uh, it's more about emotional pain. It's one of the words that's used to describe God's pain uh, on the eve of the flood. Um, uh, the pain of Eve is surely the kind of pain that she experiences in the next chapter when one of her sons kills the other of her sons. 
uh, it's the pain of parenthood in that sense. Um, and the, uh, the pain of the man, or the, the, the penalty that the man pays as a result of the being sin in the world, uh, is the way in which the work that was designed to be something purely creative uh, comes to be something frustrating uh, or harder work because they're no longer to be inside the garden where there's that wonderful water supply, but they'll be outside the garden um, in the kind of um, in an area like wilderness, the kind of uh, way that Southern California would have been if we weren't stealing water all the time from Colorado and Northern California. Patriarchy then results from the fall. That doesn't mean you just have to give in to it. At least we don't assume that that because the breakdown of relationships between the generations, between mothers and children, is a result of the fall. I've used the word fall. Don't use the word fall. Um, <laughs> as a result, uh, given that, uh, I've lost that sentence now too. Um, we don't assume that the consequences of sin being in the world, um, in the realm of um, the relationship of parents and children, of motherhood and so on, mean that we don't uh, fight against those results, even though they are the result of sin in the world. Uh, and so, uh, likewise, and, and, and likewise, we don't assume that we simply that we can't irrigate our land um, because we're outside the Garden of Eden, because we're outside the Garden of Eden as a result of God's um, casting us out. And so, likewise, we don't simply have to accept patriarchy as a consequence of, of being sin in the world. Uh, we have we have rather to struggle against it. Um, the the perspective that's suggested by the opening chapters of Genesis, not surprising, is confirmed then by the New Testament, um, which lays before us um, in many of the things that um, Paul says, for instance, uh, an ideal in terms of the relationship between the sexes, which is similar to that that's presupposed in creation, not surprisingly. But you also find Paul making allowance for the fact that even after Christ, you're still living in a world that's characterized by sin, and in the church that's characterized by sin. And sometimes he's having to uh, lay the law down with regard to the consequences of that um, in, because of things that arise uh, in congregations uh, that he's involved with. Um, Uh, anything else about the, pa the patriarchy type questions anybody wants to raise? Any, if I didn't answer your question, anybody wants to uh, say it now? Okay. Um, okay, come on. see how um, the, um, the trouble at work is going to be is very positive. So in other words, I'm querying your premise. Your, yeah. yeah, I know. If I had my head wrapped around, I might be able to answer Well, keep, you keep wrapping, and then uh, we'll wrap again next time.
consequences. Some of them are first-person verbs about what God intends to happen. So I, I don't think, you, you can't read them all as simply as consequences for which God is rather sorry. You've got to, you've got to uh, it's, it's saying, you know, God, God is, God's okay about that because God, God knows that something needs to be done. Because I, I mean, I know, I was having a discussion earlier with a friend who said that modernity really separated the sciences, but I see a lot of them similarly, and from a sociological perspective and psychological perspective, um, I see very profound things being said about what it means to be a man versus what it means to be a woman dealing with our sexuality in a broken world. Yeah, it's not exactly, in a broken a world. prescription of yeah. roles. Right, okay. But, but, but it's, it's how things are going to be in a broken world, and God didn't want it to be a broken world. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, they are, but the things that, are, yeah, it's very profound in the things it's saying. But I mean, yeah. I think sometimes theologically or from a Christian perspective, we try to say that it's a description, it's a prescription of roles versus right. a dealing with the, Yeah, okay, it's, yes, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, um, a pres- yeah, it's a, it's not, a, it's a prescription of roles. It's God, it's God being willing to chastise us. It's as a result of God's chastising of the world. Um, yeah. But it's and it's something that, but paradoxically, it's something that we that we then have to fight. Um, sometimes people have talked about, I'm going to use the word again, the fall as a fall upwards. Um, and there's a there's a tradition in uh, in in the fathers, uh, Irenaeus, for instance, seeing God, seeing em- emphasizing that that the the kind of things that the the, the issues, the sins, the sufferings that humanity has to face. Are things that, design, are, that are designed to take us towards maturity. Now that's a, a similar sort of reading. Uh, I don't think you can say that's true as opposed to the punishment plan, um, because there's an element of both in the way that Genesis talks, and we need to allow we need to allow the both. Uh, one of the things about um, why why was Abel's offering better than Cain's? Um, uh, we, we don't know, and they didn't know, and that's the point. Because the point, the point about the story is when you have to deal, is, is you're having to deal with the fact that God blesses him and he doesn't bless me. And how do you cope with that? That's the issue of the story. Um, was it an apple? No, it wasn't an apple, because apples didn't really grow there. Was it a fig? The person who asked the question um, asked, which is kind of plausible, because they do get, they, we know there are fig leaves there. Uh, but some of you know that I know it was an apricot. Uh, and that's why there's a thing on my webpage called um, After Eating the Apricot. Um, but either apricots or, f- or figs are more plausible than apples. And nicer. Or juicier. You know, the the serpent saying, look at those apricots. <laughs> um, 
Well, I can imagine that anyway. Why, why, why the musicians and the technologists and all that? Because here it's, it's bringing all that stuff into the context of the development of the world that God created. It's wonderful that the development of music and technology um, should be there, even within the context of a world that's gone, that's gone wrong. Um, no girls' names. Is it, patri- is it rather patriarchal? Yeah, it's patriarchal. I mean, it's way, even in the way the story is told. Yeah. What's with Lamech? Yeah, what's with Lamech? Let's get him in the therapy room. Um, <laughs> how, how, how interesting that, and somebody said, how surprising that polygamy comes in so early. Well, that's another way in which the whole, everything is kind of being spoilt. Lamech's violence. Uh, and Lamech's polygamy, um, it's illustrations of how things are going wrong um, uh, outside the God. Uh, uh, Why why weren't they allowed to have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Um, uh, That that would be really weird, because the knowledge of good and evil is viewed everywhere else in the Old Testament as a good thing. And so why is God saying um, you can't have it? I think it's, it's, it's as it were, an upside-down version of when God says to Abraham, go and sacrifice your son Isaac. Uh, and in the end, God isn't going to require that. What God wants to know is, would, will Abraham do what God says? And likewise with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, if only Adam and Eve had said to the serpent, um, uh, actually, we're not, no, we're not going to do that because God told us not to. The serpent would have said, and and God would have said okay now you can eat it and the whole story we wouldn't be here I don't know what would have happened but that it's a test to find out whether uh, humanity is willing to let its knowledge of good and evil be something that's subordinate to God rather than it makes up its own mind about that kind of question Um, goodbye I'll see you on Monday